Well, this is a tremendous chapter, and, and you know, I, I, I'm usually a week or two ahead, and I can't wait for next week. And now this is good tonight, but next week we're going to learn about a great big theological word called sovereignty, and Romans 9, and we're calling it Israel, O Israel, because Paul is going to change gears in chapter 9. But anyway, that's next week. But tonight, let's uh, look. Last time in the first half of chapter 8, we saw that the Holy Spirit is to be in charge of what everyone, our mind, motives, and members of the believer. Paul also pointed out the earmarks of true sonship. So keep that in mind. The Holy Spirit, and that's what Romans 8 is all about. The Holy Spirit being in charge of you and me. Okay? That's what separates Christianity from other religions, though Christianity is not a religion. But if you want to know a major difference with other religions, it's always what you do to gain your righteousness. Your works, your effort, your blood, sweat, and tears. Christianity is His blood, sweat, and tears. And Christianity is allowing the Holy Spirit to live the Christian life through you. And He does that by being in charge of your mind, what you think about, your motives, why you're after what you're after, and the members of the believer. That is, your whole body, God, is to be in charge. Once He's in charge... Everything changes. All right, now, in the second half of chapter 8, the apostle turns his attention to the future glory awaiting believers. Future glory. Now, look at verse 18. Let's just start right there. And let's see what God's got for us. I consider that our present sufferings. Anybody in here suffering? Come on, tell the truth. Don't lie to me and say, well, no, I'm blessed and this and that and the other, and you're hurting. If you're hurting, say you're hurting. Anybody in here suffering? Anybody suffered this year? Okay. Our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Well, that must be some heavy glory because I see a lot of suffering people, and some of them are suffering greatly. But he says, you can't even compare what you're uh, experiencing in terms of suffering with the glory that is coming your way as a child of God. Now, in this passage, Paul is discussing our adaptation for the family of God. First, there is adoption into sonship. We have been adopted whereby we cry out, what? Abba, Father. So we're adopted. But then there is adaptation. First adopted, then adapted. Adapted to what? We are prepared, we are adapted for a glorious future. Now, since the adaptation can be a painful process, and y'all, you need to understand it is sometimes. When the Lord goes to make you and me like Him, there's going to be some pain because we're stubborn, we're difficult, we're hard to change, we want our own way, we pout, we throw pity parties, we do all kinds of things that get in the way of God trying to make us like His Son, but it doesn't stop God. So what we're going to see is groaning is mentioned three times in the next few verses. Anybody groaned this year? All right. First you groan, then you grow. The first groaning is mentioned in verses 19 through 22. Let's look at it. The creation waits in eager expectation 
for the sons of God to be revealed. That means to come into the fullness of what we have been adopted for. We're not there yet. But when our bodies are glorified and we're in heaven and we're changed and we're perfected, that's what it means. The expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation itself was subjected to frustration. Not by its own choice, but by the will of him or a will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Now follow me for a minute. We know that, the, well, he goes on. Let's, let's finish verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been what? Groaning. The whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And since Paul's time, the creation is still groaning. It's groaning. What's it groaning for? It's waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. It's waiting for you and I and all the saints through all the ages to be brought into the perfection predicted by the Word of God. First, Paul speaks of the groaning of the creation. The fall of man involved the whole creation. At least as far as planet Earth is involved. I don't know about the other planets. I don't care about them. They don't matter to me. Earth does. I mean, I think they're neat, but I'm not counting on being on Mars in my lifetime. I'm here. And God's focus is this Earth. Now, the vegetable world was involved in the fall of man. Did you ever think about that? Since the temptation centered around a tree. The vegetable world was brought into uh, the fall. The brute creation was involved since the temptation was introduced by a serpent. And, of course, the human creation was involved since the temptation was presented to man. So the vegetable kingdom, the brute kingdom, that, that is the animal kingdom, and the human creation, all were affected by the fall. The whole world and everything in it was affected by the fall. Now you may say, well, that's not fair, but the Bible says God subjected them to this groaning because they're involved in waiting for you and I to be perfected. Now, let's look at this further. The curse which followed the, the fall involved everything. Paul says, quote, the creature, that is creation, was subjected to vanity. Now, I want you to mark that word because vanity is a strong word. It means futility. It means frustration. Not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. All right? The word vanity used in verse 20 in the King James Version is used only here and then in Ephesians 4.17 and then in 2 Peter 2.18. Aside from that, the Greek word we translated into vanity is not found anywhere else in the New Testament. It's found three times. That's it. And here's what it means. Vanity means disappointing misery. Disappointment. In this passage in Romans, it means that the whole creation has been subjected, is experiencing disappointing misery, or we could flip it and say the misery of continual disappointment. Now think about your life. Think about your life before Christ. Was it not one disappointment after another? Think about it. Look out at our world today. 
What do you see the world experiencing? The world is like on a hamster's wheel. They run, but they get nowhere. They reach for something, but they never attain it. You read the great philosophers of the past. Any of the people who wrote books, any of the men and women who sat down and said, you know, I've got to discover the meaning of life, and I'm looking for why all of this is here and how I fit into it. Read the great philosophers, and here's what you'll find. Unless they came to Christ, they all ended up disappointed. Disappointed. Because this world, disconnected from God, is subjected to futility. So we reach for ultimate fulfillment and never find it. We, we reach for the kind of love we all dream about and never get it. We see the world grasping, reaching, fighting, clawing, scratching to reach a certain pot of gold at the end of some rainbow, and they never arrive. You know why? Because we're subjected to futility. This world is. Now, the believer experiences a level of deliverance from that because it's as though the outer man perishes, the inward man is renewed day by day in the life of the believer. When you come under grace, you are delivered from a level of this. But the world out there without God, it is the misery of continual disappointment. It describes something that does not measure up, this word vanity, something that doesn't measure up to that for which it was intended. The word is used in Ecclesiastes repeatedly to describe the frustration of life without God or life under the sun. Remember old Solomon? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Boy, he's uplifting, let me tell you. You know, I, I decided to chase everything my flesh wanted to chase, and what did I get? I got nothing but emptiness and futility and vanity and disappointment. Have you ever thought about the love songs on the radio? Have you ever just stopped and thought of how many, the vast majority of love songs, top 40, whatever they are, love songs, is almost invariably about a broken heart. You thought you were going to find finally this love and this and that, but no, it ended up bad. You know why? Because we're flawed. We can't love perfectly like we wish we could. You know what's going on there? What we find ourselves experiencing is what we hope for doesn't... And, and what we experience are two different things. We're, we know inside we ought to be experiencing the kind of love, the kind of fulfillment, the kind of peace, the kind of joy that something deep inside of us tells us is there, but what we end up experiencing doesn't measure up to that for which we were intended. It's going to come later, church. The word is used in Ecclesiastes, oh, Solomon, under the sun, under the sun. That means, under the sun means life without God. When you live life without God, that's under the sun thinking. And under the sun thinking will always lead you to futility. It won't measure up. No matter what you do, it won't measure up. Clearly, there was a time when the whole creation neither groaned nor travailed in pain. But now, the lions, the tigers, the bears, ha-ha, are all groaning. The whole creation is groaning. The whole creation knows something is wrong. And they're waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. Is that not powerful? Where did Paul get that? He got that from the Holy Spirit. The incredible promises of God, or the incredible promise of God's created world, 
the high expectations and delights that accompanied it have been blunted and frustrated by the entrance of sin into the world. So you look around you. It doesn't take long. Watch the news. Walk out, look out in the neighborhoods. Look at, it doesn't matter if they're up and out or down and out. It doesn't matter if people have a lot of money or no money. They end up in tragedies. They end up in heartbreaks. They end up in disappointments because this whole deal, because of sin, has been subjected to futility. So, verse 19, the earnest expectation of the creature, the creation, waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. I like the way the Phillips translation puts that. The whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. The whole creation's on tiptoe. They can't, the whole creation cannot wait for what John said. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we do know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, that's the revelation of the sons of God. And so the creation's on tiptoe. I love that. I'm going to leave it with, right there. Brighter days lie ahead for the whole creation. Isaiah the prophet wrote of this. Here's what it's going to look like one day. The, the wolf will live with the lamb and won't eat him. The leopard will lie down with the goat the calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will walk with every one of them. That's what I'm quoting Isaiah here. Well, when is this going to happen? When the creation is no longer subjected to futility. The carnivorous won't be carnivorous anymore. And the ones that always got et all the time won't get etten anymore. Okay? That's what it's saying. Look at this. Look at what it's going to be like. See that picture? Good picture. Great picture up there. The cow will feed with the bear. Not today, but it will. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw. He'll no longer be carnivorous. He'll eat straw like an ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child will put his hand into a viper's nest and not be bitten. When Kathy and I were in East Texas, we got a frantic phone call one night, and it was some parents who had adopted this beautiful little girl. And they said, Sarah has been bitten by a poisonous snake. She's being airlifted to Dallas right now. Man, we hopped in our car. We made a beeline for Dallas. Got in that hospital room. Here's this beautiful little girl adopted. Her arm looked like Popeye. And the skin was turning black. And I could go into a lot of detail that I'll spare you from, but suffice it to say, what she had done was she was playing around in her backyard. There was one of these big bricks, and she had stuck her hand in the brick. And waiting inside was a great big fat copperhead. Pump! And only by the mercy of God, her arm was saved. Now she's grown up happy and gone on with God. But here's the deal. When this millennial kingdom has come, when the Lord has come, and and the creation has been delivered from futility, the child will put his hand into a copperhead's presence and never be bitten. Do you see that? That's what he's predicting. Will it be as surely as you're sitting there? No more surely than the fact that you're sitting there. Because the word of the Lord endures forever. It's coming. 
and I believe it's right around the corner, the millennial kingdom, where there's no more suffering, no more pain, no more medicine, no more cancer, no more heart disease, no more nothing. And this is what it's going to look like when creation has been delivered from futility, from continual disappointment. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Everybody's going to know the Lord in that day. In light of this, Paul puts suffering in perspective. So those of you that are suffering, watch this. He said, I consider that our present sufferings aren't worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, he says the same thing. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Wow. Wonderful. Now, keep in mind that what Paul calls light, light afflictions, we would all say we were about to die. Most modern Christians would feel like they were, had one foot in the grave if they went through what Paul did. But his eyes were fixed on the soon coming eternal weight of glory. Not on his sufferings, but on the coming glory. He refused to focus on what he was suffering from and focused on the glory that was coming. Now next, Paul addresses the second groaning, and that's the groaning of the Christian, because he has not yet received his glorified body. How many of y'all are wanting for that, waiting for that glorified body? You can give up curves then. You can give up dieting. You can give up Max Factor. You can give up Maybelline. You can give up, listen, you're not going to have to worry about any of that because your body is going to be glorified. Now watch this. He says, not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, do what? What do we do? groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies okay for in this hope he says in verse 24 in this hope we were saved but hope that is seen is no hope at all who hopes for what he's already got if you've got it you don't need to hope for it because you've got it but if you don't have it then you hope for it but if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it how? Did that say pacing? It said patiently. We wait for what we're hoping for patiently. Now notice that Paul says we are saved by hope. But this can at first be confusing because we're not saved by hope, are we? We're saved by grace and faith. It's not hope but faith in the shed blood of Jesus that saves us. But Paul's not talking about the salvation of the soul. He's addressing the redemption of the body. See, what a lot of Christians don't understand is that the redemption of the body is integral to the whole promise of the gospel. It's not just someday in the sweet by and by, some ethereal spirit, your soul, is going to float off to heaven and you're going to you know, fly around with angels with wings. The promise of the gospel is God is going to pull your, your body out of the grave. Please understand that. He has promised to glorify, to resurrect and glorify your body. What do you do with Lazarus? He called him body, soul, and spirit out of that grave. That was just, that was just, a, that was just a show and tell of what's coming. That was just a warm-up, because that's going to happen in mass. 
Millions and millions and millions and millions will come out of the grave, no matter how long they've been in there. God will pull it together, pull the ashes together, pull everything and give you a glorified body. That's part of the promise. Paul calls this the blessed hope. The word hope in the New Testament is not some wishy-washy, maybe so, hope so thing. Hope has to do with the certainty something good is coming in the future. It's certain. I'm not hope so, maybe so, perhaps so, golly, maybe, maybe not. No, no, no. Bible hope, Bible hope is based on the promises of God. And so Bible hope says, I'm hoping based on what he's promised me, so I know that what is coming in the future is good because he said so. Faith receives it, hope anticipates it. You see the difference? Now, at this stage in our Christian experience, right now, where we are, we groan because of the limitations of the body and the temptations of the flesh. How many of you have groaned over one of those two things lately? The limitations of the body. Man, the old gray mare ain't what she used to be. The limitations of the body. The older you get, the more you groan. <laughs> if it ain't broke, it doesn't work. It's one of the two. And, and so you go, you, so there's a groaning because you realize the limitations of your physical body or the temptations that still come to you. And they come to you because you're in a body of flesh. And so there comes a groaning eventually as you mature as a child of God. And that groaning is, I can't wait till I'm delivered from this, this body. And the promise is, if you die before he comes, he's calling you out of the grave. If you're alive when he comes, he's calling you up. But whichever, your body is going to be resurrected and you're going to get a glorified body. And that is inherent in the promises of the gospel. But the day is coming when we shall have this body of humiliation changed by the Lord. Who? And I love this, Philippians 3.21. How's he going to do it? How's he going to do that? By the power that enables him to bring everything under his control. He will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. There it is right there. No more pain. No more sorrow. No more heartbreak. No more joint pain, no more migraines, no more headache, no more hospitals, no more doctors, though I love doctors and thank God for doctors, but no more extra strength excedrin, no more, I mean, no more because everything that you experience in terms of affliction in this body, be it temptation or illness or pain or whatever, it's all going to change. This is part of our redemption. Everybody say that with me. This is part of our redemption. And though we are still hoping for it, it's as certain as the resurrection of Christ. Okay? So we have the groaning of creation, the groaning of the Christian, but there's another groaning mentioned in chapter 8, the groaning of the Holy Spirit. The groaning of the Holy Spirit. Look what he says. Quote, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes uh, for us with what? Groans. That cannot, uh, or that words cannot express. 
Listen, this week, the Spirit of God living in you has groaned over you. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit does what? He intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. I think one of the things that's going to blow our minds in heaven is we're going to realize how many times we were saved from trouble because of the groaning of the Holy Spirit inside of us, praying for us all the time. See, Jesus put a prayer inside of you, a prayer inside of you. The Holy Spirit is a praying spirit, and he prays with groanings. The Bible teaches that we have an advocate in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and we have an advocate living within our hearts who can lay bare before the eye of God the deepest needs of our souls, the Holy Spirit. He's prayed for you today in ways that you don't know about. He prays for you all the time. The vast majority of us struggle at one time or another, usually more often than not, with our prayer life. At times, our minds wander, don't they? I mean, isn't it amazing you get down on your knees in prayer and you have every good intention of praying the, the, the roof off? And before you know it, you're thinking about a TV dinner or, or something that happened last week or what your kids are doing. And Well, maybe not a TV dinner. Some of you, it's Ruth's Chris. But something gets on your mind. We're, we're, we're not in the natural great prayers. At other times, we can't think of what to pray for. What am I supposed to pray for? And you just kind of stare instead of stir. And still other times, our hearts seem strangely cold, don't they? And lacking in fervor when we know we ought to be praying, yet we can't seem to work it up. This is why we stand in such deep need of the Holy Spirit to help our infirmities in this crucial area. And he's praying for you. And, and he says he searches the deep parts of you. And he knows the deepest needs in your life. And he groans over it. And he prays without words to God. The word, it says he helps us. Uh, it says he's our helper. And the word for helps us is found in only one other place in the New Testament. is Luke 10, 40. How does the Holy Spirit help us with praying? Look at this words used in Luke. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. And she came to Jesus and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Doesn't that sound like a sis? Tell her to what? Help me. Same Greek word. Same Greek word. Same one. Martha had been doing all the, all the cooking, cleaning, preparation, so that Jesus could be rightly entertained in her home. And what she asked him for was that he would urge her sister Mary to help her in practical undertakings. This is the very idea behind the use of help. In 8.26, when it says, Holy Spirit helps us in our prayers. What we need in prayer is the practical, down-to-earth, everyday kind of help that Martha needed in the kitchen. Now, God is immensely practical. The Holy Spirit comes along, and he helps you. The very name comforter that Jesus used when describing the ministry of the Holy Spirit once he returned to heaven means literally one called alongside to what? Help. He's our helper, and the kind of help he gives is the help a doctor gives when he's called alongside the sickbed 
or the kind of help a fireman gives when he's called alongside a burning building or the kind of help a lawyer gives when he's called alongside to undertake our case. Helper is the Spirit's name. And He's there to help you in your prayer life. Amen. Glory to God. The help He brings comes in the form of groaning, which cannot be uttered. One commentator says His Spirit within us is actually praying for us in agonizing longings, which never find words. Set them free, Lord. Speak to them in their innermost, innermost, Father. Carry them across this chasm of doubt, God. Deliver them from this relationship that is killing them. Help them to do what they can't do on their own. God and his groanings that go up to God all the time. He's helping you. Thank God for the Holy Ghost. I don't know how people make it without the Holy Spirit. I really don't. The groanings of the Spirit spring from three crucial sources, and they're very simple. God knows and searches our hearts as only He can. That's the first one. Second, He knows the Spirit's mind. He knows what is the mind of the Spirit. And third, He prays according to the will of God, and that's always good. One day, listen, this groaning will give place to glory. As we who have been adapted or adopted into the family are finally adapted for that family and receive our glorified bodies and enter into God's new creation. Once we're in God's new creation, He doesn't need to groan anymore over us. But how many of you can say, I know I'm groan worthy. He better be groaning over me. I need help. Come on, give the Lord a hand for His wonderful spirit. Now, here's five powerful words. These are, these are million-dollar theological words, but let's look at them. Eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 28 to 30. Oh, what happened there? Okay. Paul winds up this awesome chapter with a reminder. Here's what he says. In, in this your favorite verse, let's read it together. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Isn't that a favorite one? Now, we may not always be able to see it, but this verse is a promise that God's purposes cannot be thwarted. I want you to know that. God's purposes over your life cannot be thwarted. They can be hindered. They can, be, they can re- receive attack, but they can't be thwarted. Everything will one day fit into His plan for us and for the world, period. He's already decreed it. If it hurts, He's going to use it. If it blesses you, He's going to use it. Whatever it is, He's going to use it. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Wow. And those, read it with me, and those He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. Amen. 
Now, here's the five words. The five key words in this passage are, and they are, I mean, theologians have fought over these things for ever since the church, ever since Paul wrote them. But we're not going to fight over them. I'm just going to tell you what they mean, and you can chew the meat and spit out the bones and go pray about it. But here they are. Foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified. These are difficult words, but they're powerful. What's foreknowledge? God knew of your salvation before it happened. He knew you were coming all the time. He foreknew you. Now, here's what this doesn't mean. It does not mean that God decided you would be saved and someone else would be lost. That's not what it means. It means this. We, we think God, at least some of us, was shocked when we repented. Can you believe he or she? But you know what God said in heaven? I knew you were coming. I knew the day. I knew the hour. I knew the moment. I knew the circumstances. I knew how it was going to happen. He foreknew you. I love this illustration. I've told it, but I'll tell it again. It's worth telling again. Here's a door. On this side of the door, there's a sign. It says, whosoever will, let him come. We're bopping along in our sinful life, and we see that. The Holy Spirit convicts us. We say, I'm walking through that door. Jesus, forgive me. We walk through the door. We come out on the other side. We shut it. And on the other side, it says, I knew you were coming all the time. I knew you were coming. God never says, well, I'll be. Never. Especially over you. So everybody say, he knew me before. Now here's the next one, predestined. Uh-oh. That means he destined me to something beforehand. Well, what was it? He predecided that those who turned to his son would be molded into his likeness. So you're a person of destiny. Are you a child of God? then you're a person of destiny because you've already been predestined. If you are predestined, then you're under destiny. What is the destiny? That you would be conformed to the image of His Son. So you are a man or a woman of destiny. And He has decreed that no matter what happens to you, what you go through, what the valleys are, what the mountaintops are, what the pain is, what the joys are, whatever happens to you in life, He's predestined that it will work together for the good. And what is the good? You're going to look like his son. He liked Jesus so much. He liked Jesus so much. He wants a whole bunch of him. So that's it. So everybody say with me, he foreknew me. He predestined me. Well, then he called. That means invited, summoned. You. You got a party invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He summoned us to partake of His salvation through Christ. He called us. Do you remember that call? There you were in your darkness doing God knows what, and all of a sudden you became aware of something calling you. You remember that? I mean, come on. Look back the way you used to live. Would you have put you here on a Wednesday night, lifting your hands, praising God, shouting over the Bible? No. What happened to you? You got called. And you went, 
I believe I'll go to that party. I believe I'll go to that party. And you walk through the door. He said, I knew you were coming all the while. You were, you were predestined to be conforming to the image of my son. And I've called you to it. Now look what he says. Once you get called, he says, justified. Having received his invitation, God acquitted us of all charges through the shed blood of his son. Really, if I had on a 100-pound backpack weighing me down, hunching my back over, I'd carry it all my life. Think of it this way. Then I walk through the door, and as I walk through that door, it falls off. And I'm delivered. I am delivered of that weight of sin. And the backpack stays over here. My new life is on the other side. So justify. How do we get acquitted? Through the blood of his son. What's justified? As if you never did it. And glorified. In God's eternal counsels, we're already glorified. It's a done deal. It's only a matter of time catching up with truth. Okay? It's only a matter of time catching up with truth. You are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus right now in the councils of God. It's only a matter of time catching up with truth. These five powerful words embrace eternity past, the present fleeting moments of this current world, and the eternity that is coming. Now we're securing him, we're almost done. What time is it? We're doing good. Watch this, secure in him. Are you secure in him? Having laid out God's redemptive purpose in verse 30, Paul poses a question. What then shall we say to these things? If God's for us, who in the world can be against us if God's for us? What are we going to say to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? His answer provides the grandest sweep of assuring verbiage in the whole Bible. First, our assurance is based on the heavy investment that God has already made in our redemption. He's already made a huge investment, the blood of his son. Paul says, quote, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, if he did that, how in the world will he not also freely give us all things? If he didn't spare his own son, he gave the very best, so anything after that is peanut butter. Okay? If he didn't spare his own son, what will he not give you that is good? If God did not withhold his very own son in order to redeem us, there's not a thing in the world that is good that he won't give you. Jesus said, don't be afraid, little flock. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And, how, and he'll give you good things to those that ask him. Now, second, our assurance is based on God's acquittal and Christ's continuing intercession for us. He acquitted us. He said, charges dropped, slate cleaned, your sin is washed away. It's as if you never did it, justified. And then he's continuing to intercede for us. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies us. Who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died. And furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. 
The Holy Spirit's groaning in you, but Jesus is right there on the right-hand side of God interceding for you. There's all kinds of attention given to you on the part of heaven. Now, third, our assurance is based on God's love for us in Christ, which guarantees that nothing will be able to separate us from Him. I love this so much. We've got to read this together. Because some of you need to get this tonight. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, peril or sword or the loss of a job or the loss of a spouse or persecution, like he's already said? Who is going to separate you or what will? as it is written for your sake we're killed all day long we're accounted as sheep for the slaughter and after listening to these various calamities that have assailed God's people and what were those calamities look at them again a tribulation distress persecution famine nakedness peril sword after listing these things he makes this pronouncement yet in all these things in, in all in what things let's go in tribulation in distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword, in all these things, we are what? More than conquerors. You know what I like about it? Not just we're conquerors, but more than. Well, wait a minute. I'm going back. I can't get past this. How can I be more than a conqueror if I'm in tribulation, distress, persecution, if I'm starving, if I'm naked, if I'm in peril, if there's a sword hanging over my head? How in the world am I more than a conqueror? Through him who loved us. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Well, let's continue. I want you to preach to me now. Let's read it. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow. If that doesn't stir you a little bit, you're not saved. Or you need to wake up anyway. You know, he used every adjective he could use. And then he just ended, well, I can't think of anything else, so I'll just say, or any other thing. In other words, there's not a thing in heaven, hell, or earth that can separate you from what? God's love. Your failures can't separate you. Your missteps can't separate you. What other people have done to you can't separate you. Your heartbreaks and heartaches and letdowns and breakdowns, none of that can separate you from the love of God. Let's say it together. I'm signed, sealed, and delivered to heaven's gates through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Stand up, give him a hand today. Hallelujah. Come on, y'all can do better than that. Give God praise. Hallelujah. That's why I love Paul. 
I call him the Attitude King, the Incredible Attitude King. You couldn't knock the man down. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this incredibly triumphant chapter. And Lord, we do give to you our mind, our motives, our members. Control us by the Spirit of God. Lead us and guide us. Thank you, Lord God, for the victory that is in Jesus Christ. Thank you that we're justified, glorified, foreknown, predestined. Thank you, Lord, for destiny wrapping its arms around every child of God in this house. Help us to live like children of destiny. We praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name, thank you, Lord. Turn Sing it, everybody. Upon yes, Lord. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. The light of his glory and grace. Are you glad you came tonight? Isn't that good stuff? Amen.